Perceptions Podcast. What if aloneness isn't seen as either an accident of life or a funky lifestyle choice? What if it is increasingly seen as a safer way to exist in a polarizing, fracturing society? Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? My wife Jill and I enjoy decompressing by watching the YouTube series Apartment Therapy. And therapy it is. Various funky apartment dwellers showcasing their stuff, their furniture, their art, their quirky purchases and their lifestyle choices, and generally in New York. So sitting with a glass of wine at the end of a busy week, it's hard not to envy those who curate their apartments to reflect their interesting lives. And we tend to look around our house at the same time, uh, judging it. (laughs) But it's their interesting single lives that's most compelling. For almost all apartment therapy guests live alone. Now, not alone in the proverbial cat lady sense, surrounded by the sad vestiges and overstuffed packing boxes of bad choices, but alone in a very self-actualized way. Alone as the pinnacle of their self-crafted achievements in life. There's no sense for most that this is a pit stop to living with more people in the future. They've arrived. It's interesting that a greater number of people now live alone. UK government statistics reveal that those living alone in 2021 in the UK had increased by more than 8% in 10 years. Former director of the UN Population Division, Joseph Hymie, observes, America is in the midst of a transformation in household living arrangements, with one in seven adults now living alone, amounting to more than one quarter of all US households. It's time to fully recognize the historic transformation of America's households and adapt to its far-reaching social, economic, and political consequences. Now, this isn't just about stats. It's people we know. Our two single female neighbors across the street live alone, as does a newly divorced man next door. Yet this shift is peculiar to the West. Globally, almost 40% of dwellings are extended family households. It might be more accurate to say that Westerners are increasingly living alone. And this has implications for our well-being. Author and church pastor Sam Albury writes that non-sexual cuddling services are now available for people who have been starved of human touch. We're outsourcing the almost incidental interactions that so many of us take for granted. Now, I travel a lot and it can feel lonely, but I know that when I get back in a week or so, my wife, my daughter, and yes, even my teenage son will come up and hug me. And that tells me something. I'm home. 
I'm not alone. It was just a way. But what if people are not merely physically separating? What if aloneness isn't seen as either an accident of life or a funky lifestyle choice? What if it is increasingly seen as a safer way to exist in a polarizing, fracturing society? Not only are we more alone in terms of our living arrangements, for the time being at least, we're also more fractured, polarized politically, culturally, and even psychologically. As individuals and tribes, we're becoming used to cutting ourselves off from folk we don't agree with. We're settling into social communities online and we're becoming tunneled vision about who we spend time around or even want to see. For if we never bump into, shop with, or do work with anyone who thinks differently to us, we are on the path to isolationism if we're not careful. Sam Albury observes, if physical presence is a way of honoring our humanity, it is also sadly true that we can all too easily dehumanize those that we are not physically around. Now, many of us have done that to some degree, haven't we? especially with the rise of social media. It's very easy to dehumanize someone on a platform, then sign off and be done with it. Except, of course, the damage. The relational damage is done. And we see this in politics. Politics is almost the new religion of our post-religious age in some respects. Sectarian divisions are increasing across the West in a way that we once assumed was only for those grubby countries with very little democracy. Now we're contesting election results and demanding recounts, things like that. And it's personal too, this polarisation. We not only see our political opponents as wrong or misguided, but bad and immoral. I read recently how many young people in the United States are foregoing the annual pilgrimage home for Thanksgiving. The alternative to a door-slamming argument with Uncle Max who came to dinner in his MAGA hat? Well, stay put. Stay at university. Do Thanksgiving with friends who think like you do. No need to adjust or restrain yourself in the face of actual difference. Yet there's a cost, of course, isn't there? One that we didn't see at the outset. Cultural commentator Tara Isabella Burton observes how alluring but dangerous it is to cut ourselves off from those we don't agree with. She says this, The idea that we are authentic only insofar as we cut ourselves off from one another, that the truest or most fundamental parts of our humanity can be found in our desires and not our obligations, risks cutting us off from one of the most important truths about being human. We are social animals. Ah, and I would add, not just social animals among those we agree with. Society has to be built upon a network of people who are deeply different to us as well. Otherwise, all we do is reduce ourselves to smaller and smaller hostile tribes. When we read memes that say, surround yourself with the positive people in life, nobody should have time for the negative people, stuff like that, we become those who curate what positive and negative means, with very little insight into our own behaviours at times. Now, this is not always the case. Sometimes for safety reasons, we need to maintain distance. But a life of only relational desire and never obligation, as Burton says, is not healthy. Yet polarisation lurks everywhere, even in places we did not expect. COVID-19 exposed deep divisions across society and in our churches, divisions that we had not foreseen. 
splits occurred. Even Christians refused to take each other's differences in good faith. And in hot political times, the trend for churches to divide along politics soared. Who voted yes in this referendum? Who voted no? Do you hang out with those who voted differently to you? Would church be easier to do if we just did it all online in the metaverse? Then we can all get along from a distance. So where's it all going? There are some serious tensions in our cultural moment. At the same time that we're polarizing, spending less time together, we also live in a context in which housing prices, rent prices, are increasing beyond the capacity of the next generation to find suitable alone places to live. That's a real tension, isn't it? The desire for alone time, the need to be separate from those we disagree with, may not be matched by the economic and social capacity to do so. That's going to create huge problems. In Australia, at least, we're having to live closer and closer together all the time. I still remember, and some of you may do too, the quarter acre block, the small three bedroom fibro house and the lemon tree in the large garden. We had all of those things in the suburbs and we could all be friendly neighbours at a distance. Now, increasingly, we have to navigate people we have no real desire to speak to with less commonalities and less tools to deal with conflict. And one tool we have less and less of is that most important tool in the kit of social cohesion, forgiveness. It's interesting that New York pastor Tim Keller's last book, though he wrote on culture and society and many things like that, was a book called Forgive. Keller saw that there was a pressing need for a forgiveness culture right at the time that there seems to be more stuff to forgive. But here's the problem. There's less forgiveness doing the rounds. The subtitle of Keller's book is instructive. It's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? There's a growing sense in our culture that the should of forgiveness is no longer required. Why should we forgive? Keller's book outlines some confronting examples of people who challenge the very Christian notion of forgiveness, and they label it a mask for power, a way for abusers to keep on abusing, and and they've got a point. In a hashtag era, the should of forgiveness is seen as a dinosaur, a rapacious dinosaur of an era that we need to leave behind. We need justice. We need to put forgiveness behind us. So not only do we not have the tools of forgiveness, the Christian message gave forgiveness to us as a desired outcome, we don't actually want that particular tool anymore when we see it. Now back to the desire for aloneness. This is clearly not true of everyone and clearly not true everywhere. But it's not simply the desire to live alone that marks out our isolating and isolated society. It's leached in much deeper than that it's that much of what we do is also increasingly alone. We're less likely to volunteer for organisations at grassroots levels, you know, the places where you get to know others and learn to bump up against people who are different and deal with minor conflicts. That's the small stuff that shapes us, 
that nudges and nurdles us towards changing ourselves, that gives us soft hearts towards others. Or if not soft hearts, then at least the option of figuring out how to deal with people we don't particularly like, without giving up or moving on or being unforgiving. I do wonder how this will all work out for the younger generations moving forward, who've not had this life-on-life need-to-forgive mutual obligation thing modelled to them. It's interesting, isn't it, that actually using the phone to speak to someone is now almost a thing of the past for the younger generations. It's almost too confronting, almost too bald. Now, please don't hear me saying these young people today. What I'm saying is that we need to model how to do costly life-on-life with other people. And we haven't really done that well. That means us older generations. We just haven't done that well and showcased that to others. And of course, this has had ramifications for us in other areas of life. It's instructive, sadly so, that the stated aim of the voice vote in Australia was to strengthen our national unity. But to be honest, that unity has been gone a long time. As a nation, we're not completely sure what unity even looks like. It's a good thing to celebrate diversity, but we understand diversity in the context of unity. And that's no longer where it seems we are, and we may not have been there for some time. The referendum did not divide us as much as merely showing up the fact that we already are divided in ways that somehow seem intractable. And in a society that celebrates the self, the autonomous self, an autonomy that is promoted through cultural messages, every movie, every graduation speech, every identity campaign, there's little fuel left in the tank to then pull out the we're all in this together mantra. And even if the fuel was in there, the gear shift into reverse from full speed ahead seems beyond us. Not that we haven't seen some good examples of unity during several crises in recent years. We've had bushfires, we've had floods in Australia, and perhaps at the start of the pandemic, there was unity. But over time, the divisions have come creeping back to the surface. Those divisions now seem set to stay, even as they deepen. So what can we do about this? Perhaps the first thing is to acknowledge it. Tara Isabella Burton calls the self-focused, self-care model of life a gospel, a good news story. It's a religious term, and even if you're not religious, I think you get what it means. And perhaps if you are a church person listening to this, it's acknowledging that it's easy to pay lip service to one gospel message, but practice another, to believe in being all together, but really practicing living alone. Now, while this is not a call to move from an apartment life to living in a commune with 50 other people, look how often that ends up anyway, it's a call to turn up the dial a little bit on doing community life a little bit better. And while if you're not a Christian or church-going person who's listening to this, much of this is centered around the church community, there's plenty of wisdom for everybody here. How can we dial down the lonely and polarized framework and dial up the cost to self but rich community framework 
of other people and mutual obligation. Here's a few things I prepared earlier. Here's what I call a plus one life. In the church that we attend, there's a process called plus one. Each term of the year, we're asked to do one specific thing extra that adds to the community life of the church. One term that may be having dinner with one other couple once in the month. Another term it may be specifically praying with or for one other person in the church on a monthly basis, just to keep them on your mind. It could be deliberately spending time with someone who's not Christian at all outside the church or a group of people in the community who need help in a way that will cost us. It doesn't sound much, does it? It doesn't sound very ninja. But perhaps that's the point. Maybe that means it's transferable. Maybe that means in your busy life, in your busy setting, you can do plus one. Because it's plus one, not times everything. One of the big problems with radical approaches to community change is that it attracts radicals. Here's the point though. Most of our lives are ordinary. Most of us are ordinary. Starting with bite-sized, ordinary ways of focusing on other people will actually help us. Plus one life is a good way to thicken up community. A second one is to what we call adopt the lonely. Now I think this is hard. And I think followers of Jesus are actually at a distinct advantage in this one because it's like what Jesus would do. Following Jesus can seem easier if you've got your life together and harder if you haven't. But here's what we did at church. We actually spend time looking out for people who no one really wants to spend time with. Because it's easy for families to hang out with other families and do life and meals and holidays together. But what if we invited someone on a family holiday or to a family event that wouldn't normally make the cut? What if a teenager who'd grown up in tough times with a single mum got to see how family life around a dinner table happened every week? How about we adopt the lonely? Now let me give you a really good example of this. A few years back, a lonely older man with a past in prison turned up at the church I was pastoring. Now he lived in a hard scrabble suburb in the type of apartment block you see on the news. He'd done some things that he'd regretted and that had fractured his family. Now the commitment to him by those men in the church and their families, who for all intents and purposes had it together, was stunning. This man didn't become their project, he became part of their friendship group. He became included in the life of the community. Now one day, a couple of years ago, he died suddenly at home, alone. And when the police found him, they checked his phone to find out who his friends were, who to contact. And the first people they contacted by the dint of the number of calls on his phone were the blokes at our church. We organized his funeral, helped his family members in their grief. There was a huge fight at the cemetery, by the way. But they were stunned when all sorts of church people, men and women, younger and older, turned up at a funeral like that. If he'd had no church family, it would have been a very small funeral indeed. That's just one way of thinking about it. Here's a third thing. What about having a collective social media accountability group? 
Now, there's a great New Yorker cartoon of a woman standing at the door to the study dressed in her pyjamas, asking her husband, who's on his computer, aren't you coming to bed? And he replies, I can't. There's someone who's wrong on the internet. There's always one person in your setting who's a keyboard warrior, isn't there? Here's hoping it isn't you. With the polarizing of our society being exacerbated by the problems that Sam Albury raised about dehumanizing those who are not around us, we're in danger of increasing this polarization with social media. It's easy to feel demonized by some of the searing mockery towards your beliefs and values that you see on the internet. And sadly, it's becoming just as easy to fight fire with fire. What about if we took time to take a health check on how we engage with others with whom we disagree online? It's common practice these days to have an accountability partner when it comes to things like online porn. But what about online arguments? Is there a person or a group who has permission to hose you down or head you off at the pass online? Daniel C. is a Tasmanian pastor and a very successful business consultant. And he's got a great book called Raising Tech Healthy Humans, How to Reset Your Children's Tech Habits and give them a great start to life. Here's the thing, it's not just about kids, it's about all of us. With the online world merging with the real world, there are real challenges and opportunities. We can demonstrate self-controlled lives that lead towards community, true community, true trust, and not away from it. That's something we can do. Have you thought about having that sort of accountability group among your friends? Finally, we need to learn to engage well with public life. Public discourse is more abrasive and toxic than ever. And often Christians are seen as the bad guys and could be so online especially. So it's tempting to retreat and keep our heads down. But that does no one any favors. What would it look like for your church to contact your local politicians to assure them that your church was praying for them? even if you know that they're not the praying type. What about asking if there is any local problem that the church can help alleviate? Be magnanimous during cultural debates online and in the public square. Our state's main newspaper is often hostile to independent schools. That's something I've noticed. And one journalist wrote an article as to why she was in favor of government education, citing her own negative independent schools experiences growing up. But it was what she said at the start of her article that was most interesting. She began saying these words, I assume I will get trolled for this, but, and then she wrote her article, I assume I will get trolled for this. I wrote to her to give her my thoughts and commend her bravery for stepping into the fray, even though I disagreed with her. And it's interesting what she wrote back to me. She wrote this, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to write an intelligent, reasonable letter about this. When I feel like I'm adding to public debate, I feel like I'm doing my job. You see, contrary to apartment therapy, it isn't all about my flourishing. We're doing our job when we seek the flourishing of others and dial down the polarization. What steps can you take this week in your community to dial down the level of polarization? even among those with whom you may disagree.
Undeceptions podcast. <laughs>